The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with Kevin DeSanto, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Kips DeSanto, an investment banking firm here in D.C., specializing in uh, in GovCon and defense and aerospace. Uh, what am I missing, Kevin? <laughs> Technology is the other bucket that we like to talk about. The, the, oh, yeah, I, I've seen a few of your deals in, in the tech bucket. Welcome back to the show, man. Been too long. It has been. Uh, thanks for, for having me back. Maybe I've done just okay in the previous session, so hope I can uh, improve on it. Yeah, you always do good. You offer good information, which is why you come back. So let's give people a little background on Kips DeSanto. You guys have been around for more than a couple weeks now, you and Bob. We have been, and uh, in 2022, we celebrated our 15th year uh, since the founding of the business in uh, 2007, and uh, we've had a, a, an opportunity to act as entrepreneurs like our clients, uh, many of our clients, and it's been a great experience, extremely rewarding both personally and professionally. And uh, as I think most folks uh, who know us are aware, in 2019, um, our organization was acquired and merged into Capital One uh, in, a, in an M&A transaction similar to those that we advise on uh, here every day. And that's been a great partnership and opportunity for us to continue to build our practice and grow and expand our team and uh, continue to improve on uh, the advice and uh, work that we do on behalf of our clients. So we're super excited about where we uh, sit today. And 2023 is uh, going to be another another fun year for our team uh, as we can continue to advise companies on mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, you've you've got an extraordinary team. And I noticed the other day, you know, the the retention level. I, I forget the uh, the young lady's name, but she's celebrating like 11 years with uh, with you and Bob. Um, and I, you know, I love to see that. I, I like, I like that retention because, you know, when I come back to visit, I want to see the same people. I won't remember their names, but I'll remember their faces. Yeah, that's a pretty important piece of the puzzle for us. Uh, you know, this is a, a client service business. This is a business where you have to build relationships. Um, you know, these are typically transactions that are the penultimate financial transaction for, you know, at least one side uh, or one party in the transaction. And so uh, having people that have been through it, having folks that are industry experts, um, you know, having people on our team that our clients are comfortable with is, is a big part of that. And so we, we, we strive to um, you know, have a really good, strong retention, a good culture, uh, you know, treat our, team uh, as best we can in a tough job. Uh, it's not always easy as investment bankers uh, to do that for those that have heard, you know, some of the, the stories of Wall Street and, and other ways of doing this. But we, we like to think that we've created a, a different way, a different approach and uh, a different culture internally than, than what you might typically see in, in the movies or the TV shows that, uh, that depict that, that activity. 
And, you know, for us, it's always been a, a, a job that, that is challenging and, and is technically, uh, you know, really sophisticated and difficult, uh, but to do it and have fun as well. Uh, you know, it, it, it tends to be, um, you know, extremely rewarding at the end, but it can take four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months to get a transaction completed, given the complexity of it. And uh, if we're not having some fun on the way through, then, you know, that can really be a drag. And, and some deals are just hard and, you know, feel like a drag anyway, but you know, having the right people at the table, being uh, in a position to develop strong relationships with our clients really does uh, make this something that is, uh, you know, a great job to to do for a long time. I'm, you know, coming up on uh, 25 years of, of doing this as a professional, uh, which is hard to believe at this point. Yeah. And, and nice that 15 of those are working for yourself, basically. <laughs> Although I got to tell you, I never felt like it was working for myself. <laughs> you're always, well, you're always working for your clients. That's right. So that's exactly that, right. That that That's real. But, you know, not having to report to, I mean, you don't report to Bob. Bob doesn't report to you. You coordinate. Um, so that's cool. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little about, you know, what's going on in the, in the GovCon arena for, for M&A. Um, so give me, give me your perspective over the last couple of years and throw in the, uh, the COVID effect. Yeah, well, the COVID effect, uh, it, it probably comes in a number of different flavors. Uh, you know, 2020 was an incredibly unique year for all businesses and all of us uh, in our individual lives and families. And you know, M&A activity was impacted in an incredibly unique way that I'm not sure anybody could have anticipated. We took a pause and call it mid-March when you really sort of had official proclamations of being in a pandemic or, you know, sort of in a, a health crisis at that point in time. And um, that pause uh, really, if, if you had asked me on March 15th of 2020, I would have thought that it lasted for three, six, nine, 12 months. I you know, just, it was impossible to see how that wasn't going to have a significant impact on MA activity for an extended period of time. But the pause was really for just about three months. Um, it was really at the short end of anything that we could have um, really projected at that point. And so, you know, come kind of mid-June into the July uh, window, uh, we had really picked back up and we were extremely active on the M&A front in 2020 uh, for that back kind of six months of the year. And so when you look at the overall stats, um, you know, we thought 2019 was a headline year, it was incredible in terms of the activity. Our business uh, had performed really well and the number of deals that we advised on as a company. And then in 2020, despite that kind of 90-day pause in the second quarter, um, there were more M&A transactions in the government technology services space uh, by uh, you know, a little more than 10%, probably about 15% in total. Uh, you know, just impossible to project that. The, the driver was really availability of capital, um, you know, sort of a, an industry focus, particularly kind of uh, folks that are supporting the federal government um, that saw um, protections come through in the form of um, kind of government support for contractors to make sure they were continuing to get paid uh, during those difficult times. Obviously, the flood of money into the broader economy 
allowed for um, private equity groups and buyers to to obtain financing uh, at that point in time. And so in a moment when we thought we might skip a beat, uh, we really didn't and saw that kind of record level of action and activity in the second half of 2020. And then it really just gained momentum as interest rates continued to stay at all time lows. And, you know, there was uh, incredible liquidity in the markets. Uh, you know, there was just uh, uh, so much capital being deployed in M&A transactions that in 21, after really a, a record year in a weird year of 2020, you know, we saw kind of roughly a 35 to 40 percent increase in the number of deals that were done in 21 relative to 20. And for the most part, those were done uh, virtually, which was a super unique aspect to, to, to the deal experience. Um, you know, for my entire career, it was all about being together in person, developing relationships, that connectivity, that trust that's inherent in, in doing these uh, types of transactions. And I mean, we, we did most of that work uh, virtually in 2021. And again, just, uh, you know, an amazing amount of throughput in the system. Um, you know, I, I think folks kind of ended the year uh, in 21 a little bit exhausted overall. And so we saw a, a kind of a dip in activity in early 2022. Um, and then, you know, with the changes that we've seen kind of across, across the economy, particularly with interest rates going up over the course of 22, deal activity really stepped down pretty meaningfully over the course of each quarter in 2022. So you kind of had this record year in 2019, another record year in 2020, you know, without any, you know, really good way to predict that that was the case given the, the pandemic. Um, an amazing year given the liquidity in 2021. And then a system where we were just trying to catch up and figure out what our capacity was and then increasing rates in 2022. And so 22 was really back to where we were in 2019 uh, in terms of volume, slightly off of 2020, but materially off of the high watermark in 21. And so when you really kind of think about what was happening over the course of the last four years, um, the availability of capital, both equity and debt, was just a major driver of uh, kind of M&A activity in each of those periods with its peak in 21. And now we're trying to figure out what that new world order is, what that new norm is as we look forward. Are rates going to stabilize? Are they going to continue to um, you know, maybe uh, go up a little bit? Are they going to go down here as, uh, as things evolve and we get a better read on where we are uh, across the economy? You know, those are the types of things that we're watching carefully to understand what types of deals can get done and and ultimately the types of transactions uh, or the types of funding that's going to be available for these transactions as we go. So pretty dynamic marketplace today with a lot of uh, unanswered uh, questions, uh, but I'd say still a, a pretty healthy environment for M&A because there are very mature buyers, very mature investors and very interested and willing sellers that are all coming together uh, to try to figure out how to get uh, deals done for strategic purposes or for liquidity purposes, despite what that macro environment might look like. Okay. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. You can find uh, Kevin at Kips DeSanto, K-I-P-P-S, DeSanto.com. You can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin DeSanto of Kips DeSanto, an investment banker focused on GovCon, aerospace, IT, uh, you know, 
they're 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 right here in beautiful downtown McLean, a couple of floors under the Tower Club. If you happen to go to the Tower Club, and I haven't been to your offices in a while, we'll have to take care of that. Um, <laughs> so I'll come over and we'll go do lunch or something. Um, so <laughs> you talked about uh, you know the 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 plethora of deals, especially in twenty and twenty one. Uh, some some drop off in 22, but who, what what types of buyers are out there? You're talking about the money opening up there for maybe a three year window or so, and um, I remember way back and way back being you know 10 15 years ago, I thought some of the venture companies coming into the market weren't particularly sophisticated, didn't understand the market, um, and that obviously has changed so what what types of buyers are out there what are they looking for we use terminology to describe buyers um in i would characterize it as four distinct buckets um one is the private company that has uh, been growing and has cash flow and has a balance sheet against uh, which they can borrow money from a bank to buy other businesses as part of their strategy for increasing competitive positioning or enterprise value, shareholder value, et cetera. Uh, the second bucket are publicly traded companies that um, you know we typically might uh, kind of characterize as part of the, the government or defense sectors. The third are um, what we would characterize as financial sponsors or private equity groups. And then the fourth are the companies that those financial sponsors or private equity groups own, which you might characterize as a portfolio company or a platform uh, business. And generally, uh, you know, deals that we're working on and that we see across the government uh, market have uh, all four of those as prospective buyers for a business. Uh, you know, as you get larger. Uh, in transaction size, you might eliminate some uh, private companies or some of the financial sponsors or portfolio companies that exist. But you know, generally for a, an industry where the average deal size is going to be less than $100 million or, uh, you know, sort of the, the bulk of the transactions, probably 75, 80% on a given year are going to be sub $100 million in purchase price or enterprise value. Um, you can find uh, these pockets of buyers in all four of those categories. And they all represent very different things for our uh, clients or folks that are going through a transaction. You know, the, the one thing that has changed pretty significantly over the years is the volume of transaction activity that is driven by financial sponsors or private equity firms. Um, that's been just a a major, major change in um, kind of the, the opportunity that exists for sellers or companies that are looking for liquidity in the government contracting and, and defense space uh, in particular. And so, um, you know, when we look at the, the statistics for, you know, call it, let's call it just 2022 as an example, basically 50% of the transactions that occurred were either a new financial sponsor creating a portfolio company or a portfolio company of a financial sponsor buying another business. And so half of the transaction activity, it's probably a little bit more when you get down specifically into the stats, um, was driven by a group of uh, investors and folks that think about this industry uh, because of the fact that it has such strong 
financial uh, and sort of investment uh, kind of um, uh, considerations. And so this is a, a big shift, a big opportunity for folks. They're, these are unique models that can create value for uh, companies or shareholders at the initial transaction. You'll oftentimes hear people refer to the second bite at the apple after another three to five years when you go through building uh, with these types of businesses. But it's really been just a, a pretty significant shift in, in the industry. And we've grown accustomed to those financial sponsors or private equity groups uh, thinking very similar to a strategic buyer. So they are experienced, they've studied the sector, they are coming in and they are, uh, they are uh, learning uh, enough to really be very, very considerate about things like which programs and which customers are going to have the strongest or highest growth opportunities, which management teams have the qualities or uh, you know, sort of the components to be successful. Uh, what type of investments do you have to make in a business to drive value over time? And then maybe most importantly, how do you execute on an acquisition strategy that's going to build enterprise value over that three, four, five-year hold period? And so um, having that financial sponsor, private equity universe come into the sector has changed things very materially, uh, created a, you know, basically doubled the size uh, or doubled the opportunity for folks to think about who their buyer or investor might be uh, here in 2023. Cool. So, um and any any particular deals from well let's let's talk a little bit about a couple of years if that's okay um i know that these came late 22 but the announcements came out just recently you had several deals at the end of last year was there anything in particular that was driving those yeah, I think the one thing um, that I would point out relative to the, this conversation that we were just having about the types of buyers or investors there might be in this marketplace, um, you know, for, for Kips DeSanto in 2021 and 2022, we uh, closed 12 transactions during that 24-month period with private equity groups that were creating new portfolio companies or new platform uh, investments. And so that's something that is, it, they're complex transactions. Um, you know, they're sort of unique starting points for uh, hopefully a kind of additional MA in the future, right? The, each of those platforms is going to go on over the course of the next five years, probably on average to do a deal a year. And so just by virtue of creating that dozen platform companies, you could foresee that there is another 12 deals per year that are going to occur as they build out that platform or that portfolio company. And so that's a pretty unique way to kind of create activity in the space uh, where these investors come in and not only are they going to grow that business organically, but they're going to grow it through acquisition as well. And so, you know, when we take uh, kind of stock of where we are as an industry, whether the interest rates are up or down or whether the sort of economic backdrop is, uh, up or down is is somewhat uh, of an indifferent viewpoint because these business models and these investment models are driven by additional activity, and that's just what we've done. Um, you know, across the sector, there's been dozens of other platform investments over the last two to three years, and you know that again, is going to drive on average probably a deal a year out of each of those organizations. And so you can see how M&A has become 
a very fundamental part of creating value in the GovCon sector. And that activity is, you know, really, you know, when, when we look at and think about the deals that were announced towards the tail end of last year, um, a lot of that activity is driven by these kind of strategic investors looking at how to build out their portfolio or to start new or to, to do it again, uh, as we oftentimes see. A lot of the private equity groups that have had success in the sector tend to do it on a serial basis. You know, do one investment for three or four years, uh, exit that, then do another one for three or four years and sort of rinse and repeat their model. Cool. I want to take a break now and we'll we'll do a little deeper dive in the next segment. So uh, I'll be back with Kevin right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Kevin DeSanto. Kevin is he's my regular guest on these things because he's really friggin' deep, uh, and I can ask him stuff uh, off the wall. So here's one off the wall. You're talking about these these equity firms, private equity, coming in and uh, building the platforms, and then over the course of a five year run, building that platform out. What are the rhyme schemes involved here? Are they going after, do they want to own a particular niche in technology, a broader thing like health IT? Are they focusing on cyber? Are they focusing on uh, specific agencies? What parse this for me, please? The best way I can characterize the strategy is how I think about value. And, And value comes in, really one primary uh, bucket in, in, you know, think about GovCon uh, kind of specifically again, and that's growth. And so anytime an investor or a strategic buyer is focused on buying an asset, it is because they believe that it is going to fundamentally drive growth for them, or it is going to enhance their ability to grow their own business organically, or it's going to be the start of something that is going to grow significantly. And so, when you think about uh, how to grow in this in this sector in these industries, there's really three primary ways that you can go after it. One is scale, uh, sort of this idea that the larger you get, the more you can invest, the more opportunities you can go after because you've got significant cash flow. You likely have access to contract vehicles. You've got management team processes, parts of the organizations that can really go after work, and so. The, the size of an entity continuing to increase and expand is one way to create growth opportunities and, and drive value. And so we'll see some strategies that say, I don't really care exactly what we're doing or exactly who we're doing it for, as long as we can achieve scale, as long as we can drive um, size of organization. And you know, you'll see that in a lot of the public companies, right? It's uh, a mix of defense and Intel and Fed civil and other customers. And it's just how do we increase the addressable market? How do we uh, put ourselves in a position to bid more work, uh, get better opportunities to win and, and drive growth? The second is uh, capability driven, right? You mentioned things like cyber and you know, the buzzwords in, in, in GovCon change uh, on a regular basis and, you know, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and 
uh, IT modernization and big data and cloud and all, all of the sort of new and modern ways of doing business and leveraging technology and platforms are super important in the commercial world. They're extremely important in the government world. And there's going to be billions of dollars spent on um, you know, those transitions or those modernizations. And so capabilities are a very important um, and can be a way to build value in a business because if you become an expert in one of those or if you become uh, kind of tied into a, a specific platform or a specific uh, original equipment manufacturer OEM of, of technology, you know, you could find lanes, uh, you can find budget, you can find customers that are going to adopt this in ways that are going to create five, 10, 15 year runways for the type of work that you're doing. And so capability and, and being focused in that manner is, a, is another great example. And then the third is really around customers. And, you know, the customer one is always interesting to me. It tends to be how larger organizations in this GovCon world are organized. You organize around defense, you organize around health, you organize around Intel or any number of other kind of customers or markets. And so um, what we have found is that companies that are very deep in a customer, they might do a lot of things for that customer, but depth in a customer can create value as well because it's easy to relate to. It's easy to fit into a portfolio. It's easy to have a sponsor or an internal uh, kind of leadership dynamic that, that it feeds into. And so uh, organizing around a customer where there's strong budget trends or where there's a, a need for outsourced uh, kind of support or, you know, there's just an inability to execute their mission without bringing in experts from the outside uh, tends to be a great way to organize a business and drive value and you know, in, in our world, we're trying to think about identity. Uh, how, what, what, how do we describe a company in 30 seconds or less? Uh, if you're doing all things for everybody, uh, it can be pretty difficult to do that. Uh, but if you're at scale or you're deep within a capability or that you've got an intimate relationship with a customer or a set of customers that have some commonality, that's really when we see um, value creation, you know, come and, and people get really excited about a business because they can truly understand what they're buying. And then they can really tell you why it fits with their strategy, which is probably the great challenge at the end of all this. What's the press release look like? What are the analysts going to say? What are the investors in your organization going to say when you come to them and, and you want to you know, get the funding for that acquisition? Yeah, that's it. It brings to mind to me, the uh, CRSA acquisition of Praxis several years back. And, you know, people outside of the IC probably hadn't heard of Praxis. Privately held, very well ensconced in Fort Meade. Um, And then CSRA, CRSA, I forget. Yes, CSRA, yeah. Yeah, they they purchased them. And it's, it's news for a specific part of our community. And then what, three months later, GDIT swoops in and scoops up CRSA. So, uh, so obviously, you know, it's the, the big fish eating the middle fish, eating the small fish, but it was focused on doing business with Fort Meade. Um, and it was fun as hell to watch. Yeah, and that's that addressable market concept that I mentioned a little bit earlier the ability to open up access organically 
can sometimes be very challenging. It, it may be that you do not have the past performance or the quals to bid and win a piece of work or a contract or a contract vehicle on your own. It may mean that you do not have the people that can execute on that kind of getting into that market or sort of uh, building out uh, relationships or, or the ability to execute there. And the, the, it could also just be timing wise, you weren't thinking of it two or three years ago when the contracts were awarded or the contract vehicle uh, was in the process of being bid. And, and that's one of the things that I think is unique about M&A in the sector is that we have such great visibility because there's a period of performance associated with everything that we do. There's very little open-ended relationship or contracting or uh, kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, ability to help or uh, do something with the customer can be very different than the commercial market. And so, you know, if you had a contract vehicle that was uh, the focus of the market in the Intel world in 2020, and that wasn't part of your strategy, and here you sit in 23, and you're trying to figure out how you grow into that market, one of the only ways you can do it is to acquire the companies that were there already. And, you know, to your point, there are not oftentimes always brand names. They're not oftentimes always known quantities, uh, but they can be substantial value opportunities uh, if you are, are, are looking to access a market and, and you weren't thinking about it when you should have been or had to be or would have needed to be if you wanted to be relevant there. Yeah. And the, you know, the other side of that is if the customer doesn't like the acquirer, and I'm not talking about the company customer, I'm talking about the agency customer, they can squash the deal by saying there's not going to be any innovation of work here. Yeah, and that is um, you know, something that uh, is a consideration in the due diligence that goes on for each transaction is to make sure that there's continuity and that there is consistency and uh, that there isn't going to be disruption. That's really the value of the business is that these contracts and the work are going to continue on post uh, change of control. The one thing that is unique about this sector is that the novation process um, only happens or typically only happens when you uh, go through and, and sell the assets of the business. And so one of the things that you'll see typically in a merger and acquisition transaction around the government contracting space is that it's a sale of the stock or a sale of the membership units of the entity so that um, the name and the uh, tax ID and, and sort of the other uh, characteristics of the business continue on, despite the fact that there's a new owner for the business. And so there's some, you know, I'd say some, some ways to, to create consistency or to avoid disruption um, that are useful and helpful. And, you know, some things that have been developed over the years, given the fact that, you know, again, just using GovCon as an example, you know, we expect to see north of a hundred transactions in that, that, you know, sort of niche space over the course of 2023. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's not an insignificant number given uh, many of them are here in our own backyard. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're probably within walking distance of half of them. So <laughs> it, it does feel like that uh, <laughs> some days, although there's some really attractive markets outside of D.C. that uh, that folks should be working towards as well. Sure, sure. All right, we're going to take our last break. Then we're going to come back and talk about some deals from last year. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm with Kevin DeSanto, 
of Kips DeSanto. You can find them at www.kipsdesanto.com. And we'll return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Kevin DeSanto of Kips DeSanto. Uh, Kevin, let's let's uh, pick pick some of the top deals from from 22, um, and tell me why they're important. Important is a word that I I, I look at and think about, and, and we're trying to describe M and A. Um, you know, you could do a, a small deal that's really important to the mission or really important sure. to the, the growth of an organization. And then, you know, I think as uh, as bankers and just as industry watchers, we all probably default to the larger transactions as, you know, the ones that are, are probably the most important to what's happening in the sector and, you know, what's happening in the industry in terms of creating value. Um, you know, when we're, we're sort of, um, trying to assess where people are moving or why they're doing these deals, um, you know, some of the things that that come to mind are, you know, what's the geopolitical landscape and what are the types of, of trends that we're going to see over time that are going to drive, um, you know, value or opportunity for contractors? Um, you know, what are some of the economic trends um, that are going to influence deal structure? Um, you know, what are some of the other kind of factors that we've been hearing about labor markets and um, uh, supply chain challenges and, and the like. And, and so when you're kind of trying to assess all those things, you know, you're really, you're really thinking about important deals uh, in the context of how do you solve challenges uh, long-term? How do you create those growth opportunities we were talking about last segment? And then, you know, you look across the landscape and, I mentioned earlier, you know, 80% of the deals in the space tend to be less than $100 million. Um, so in 2022, you know, there was 25 or so transactions that were north of $100 million. And, and really only a few or a handful that were north of a billion dollars in size. Um, you know, the one that jumps out, I, I think, you know, for all of us in 22 uh, was uh, Mantech uh, being a, a publicly traded company for a long time and then um, having the Carlisle group come in and, and take that company private uh, in the first half of 2022, uh, you know, really a, a very significant transaction for the industry as a whole, um, you know, close to a two and a half billion dollar revenue business uh, that was, you know, one of the mainstays in the public market and, and just a, a franchise position across the industry as a whole. And you see, you know, an investor coming in and, and really, um, you know, seeing an opportunity to create value, despite the fact that, um, you know, it was a, a healthy valuation um, uh, for that purchase and, uh, you know, something that, you know, looks at, at, at to have achieved the scale that we talked about earlier. And so I think that's a, a deal that's going to be get deals would be my, my sense. Um, you know, you're going to take that business private and it's going to transform over the next, you know, X number of years. And, uh, really looking forward to seeing, um, you know, what that investor group is going to do uh, with that business. Um, one of the the transactions that um, we worked on last year was the um, divestiture of LMI Consulting from uh, the nonprofit uh, that had been around since the, the early 1960s. And again, a, an investor group um, led by Declaration Capital and Capital Meridian Partners coming in and, and um, looking at a business that, um, you know, had historically been 
uh, owned and operated by a nonprofit and saying, you know, can we create more value? Can we create more opportunity for the leadership team and the employees of that organization? And, you know, look to try to um, evolve and change to, you know, meet the modern needs of the customer and the modern needs of the employee base there. And so, you know, I think that that's going to be a really interesting one to watch and would expect that to, that deal to beget deals. Um, you know, LMI uh, actually acquired another one of our clients towards the tail end of 2022 and, um, you know, would anticipate that there's opportunities for them to continue to grow and expand via M&A as well. And then, um, you know, I'd say just kind of going back to um, that, that, that story uh, of, kind of buying a business, building, expanding, and growing. Um, New Spring Capital had built a business called Avantis uh, over the course of uh, the last three or four years. And um, that business was acquired by Kinetic in uh, the tail end of uh, 2022. And again, a, a business that had grown to about $300 million in revenue and um, had done so via half a dozen acquisitions. And um, you know, was uh, acquired because it represented a very significant uh, platform uh, for Kinetic to kind of continue to build their presence here in the U.S. And so, um, you know, really interesting deal and opportunity that is very representative of what we see those financial sponsors or private equity groups trying to build and, and grow. It's a mid-tier contractor that gets acquired by a, a larger business that's looking to expand its presence. And, you know, we think that that's going to continue to be a theme uh, here in 23 and beyond, because it's harder and harder to grow into that mid-tier organically. And, uh, you know, the acquisition strategies of the private equity groups can be really useful in building that next group that's going to be acquired by the larger companies in the industry. And we've seen the public companies in the sector uh, become larger as well. And so the average revenue size or the median revenue size of the publicly traded companies in the government contracting space is probably is double today what it was seven, eight, nine years ago. And that just means they have to buy larger businesses or they're going to have more capital to deploy and therefore do more transactions. And so, um, you know, we think that there's going to be some, some more interesting deals that come along, um, you know, in, in the next year or two as a result of, you know, that need to deploy capital. And through all of this, I mean, really the big theme is that M&A has become a core use of cash flow or a core cash deployment strategy for most, if not all of the companies in the GovCon sector. And it's an extremely efficient use of capital. Um, you know, the, the leverage that's available makes it even more powerful because you can spend more than you have. And it's ultimately a position that, um, you know, a lot of companies are, are healthy today in terms of their cash balances, cash flow generation, uh, balance sheets in general. And so we think that there's going to be more activity uh, similar to the few that we just talked about. Okay. Um, <clears throat> go back to LMI for, for a minute. Um, unless you're in a specific segment of the government market, a lot of people, a lot of companies in our market didn't know LMI. Basically, it was a nonprofit think tank or is a nonprofit think tank that, that operates in 12 stovepipes around the intelligence community, DOD, and energy. Um, I did some consulting there a while back, and I, I can't tell you how many friggin' PhDs I ran across in the lobby. Um, it, it was it was insane, but I mean, you know, 
they they you know the deal certainly did bring them out of the relative unknown status um there there's a lot of companies out there like that that unless you're in the market you really don't know who the heck they are and they may own significant mind share and market share in specific agencies and specific technologies so you know witness microsoft investing heavily in in AI platforms recently, um, you know, how often does this happen and we really don't see it? Yeah, the the name brand dynamic in this industry is 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 somewhat unique. Uh, you know, you don't see um, these these names broadcast uh, kind of nationally. They're not consumer brands that you know, become a part of your everyday life, but. If you look around and, and you're paying attention, whether it's at you know the local arenas and stadiums or uh, sponsorships of uh, programs or schools or um, you know events, I mean they're 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 pretty prominent, um, but the names don't often mean you know something to us on a day to day basis because we it's hard to understand what they do. You don't necessarily have an appreciation a lot of times for the customers that they work for or support and. You know, getting back to that identity concept that I mentioned earlier, and, you know, I know this is very close to your heart, you know, trying to build a brand uh, around that and trying to get people to truly understand how to think about your business uh, is, I think it's a really important and probably somewhat underestimated aspect of creating value. uh, Because, you know, when we get in and you find that there's a culture and a connectivity uh, from the employee vantage point, and there's a sense for, uh, a, a solution from the customer side of things. And there's momentum in your business development and pipeline generation. You know, those things matter when it comes to, you know, uh, determining that there's a sustainable growth story uh, for a business. And so I, I think that, you know, if I were to you know, be in charge of a business like that, even if it's difficult to, to describe what we do on a day-to-day basis, I, I'd work hard at creating that brand and, and making sure that there was a marketing campaign and that there was a, um, you know, a sense of community and, and connectivity uh, there because that it matters. I, I can tell you just from the conversations that we have with buyers and investors, they're looking for healthy, they're looking for engaged, they're looking for a group of people that doesn't feel like it's at the end of the road or that there's, they're, at, they're at the edge of the cliff. And, and so there's, there's, I think, a lot of value that can be gained from, you know, maybe taking a commercial mindset into this GovCon market and building that brand, that identity, really getting people to to kind of think about your business in maybe a more commercial manner. Yeah, I I agree, but you know, the the market is um, fragmented enough that you can build a brand in a niche in our market and still stay you know, relatively unknown. Praxis. Uh, Praxis, you know, if you played in the IC, you knew who Praxis was, even if you weren't at Fort Meade. If if you, uh, you know, if you were in the, the research and development side, you knew the Logistics Management Institute. Uh, otherwise, it was an acronym on a building and people said, oh, them, I don't know what they do. Um, <clears throat> you know, so Building that, I I agree completely. Building that brand is extremely important. Developing the subject matter expertise is extremely important. But you don't have to uh, uh, broadcast it. You can narrow cast it. Yeah, and publicity is probably a whole different topic. 
you know, sometimes you just, you want to maintain a, 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 you know, relatively low profile off uh, the radar uh, type of position, depending on the capability or the customer set that you're supporting. Doesn't mean that you don't have a brand and an identity and a culture and all those things that come along with, you know, all the things that, that you work with your clients on. I, I think it's, you can have both. Um, you can have your, you know, anonymity or as much as you want and have an identity and a, a culture of kind of who we are, um, you know, particularly for our employees and our customers. Yeah. Praxis didn't need uh, broad recognition when they were, you know, an independent company uh, doing a lot of work at NSA, but they had the greatest marketing campaign ever. You know, those road signs that say, you know, this company cleans up your road. Well, Route 32 going into uh, Fort Meade had the Praxis sign about a quarter mile away from the entrance to NSA. Well, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning. You're going to sit by that sign for five minutes. <laughs> so, location, 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 right? Exactly. Exactly. You got any final thoughts? Yeah, look, we did a survey uh, of folks that are on the buyer and investor side uh, here over the last few months. And uh, over 80% of them told us they're going to do as many or more deals this year than they did last year. So, um, you know, looking forward to uh, another year of a lot of activity. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see some real interesting value creation transactions in, in 23 and beyond. Can people find that report on your website? Yep. That's right. Kipsdesanto.com. There you go. So if you want to see the, uh, the results of that study, uh, visit Kevin and Bob's website. Uh, Kevin, thanks, man. This is always fun. Yeah. Great to see you, Mark. I appreciate the time. You bet, man. Uh, this is not my day job. As we intimated in the last segment here, I advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I focus on helping companies build that subject matter expert thought leadership platform in the market, leveraging content and particularly LinkedIn. So if that resonates with you, drop me a line, markamtower at gmail.com or find me on LinkedIn and reach out. And thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.